Welcome back to another episode of Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Allie. And this is Jason. This week, we'll be talking about surgical education kind of in general. So we'll be talking with one of our esteemed professors of surgery, Dr. Martin McCarter, who's a surgical oncologist, about teaching and learning in the operating room. Um, what it's like to actually be a surgical educator. And then we'll also be talking with one of our fellow surgical residents, Dr. Julia Coleman. She's actually my lab mate. We are both in the trauma lab under the auspices of Dr. Moore. She recently attended a very cool, I guess it was three-day course. Well, she'll tell us more about it, but basically it was a course all about education and leadership in surgical residency. And Julia has a particular interest in that topic, so she will be a great resident where we can pick her brain on how residents can become more involved in teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. Now, usually we talk about what fun things we've done in the past, but we've got an exciting week coming up next week. Allie and I will be attending the Surgical Education Week in Austin, Texas. Allie, you excited? Very excited. If you guys are also attending Education Week in Austin next week, hit us up on Twitter at RMS Pod, and we'd love to hang out with you or talk during the conference. Allie, have you been in the great state of Texas before? Uh, only once during Ooh. interviews for surgical residency. Ooh. All right. Well, I'm excited to show you around the home state. Yeah, fun. Jason's from Texas, if you guys couldn't tell by his voice <laughs> and his cowboy boots that you hear when he walks into the room. That's actually not true, but I want you guys to think it is. <laughs> I don't even own a pair of cowboy boots or a hat. So with that being said, let's get into our interview with Dr. McCarter. Welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. We are very honored to have Dr. McCarter with us, one of our excellent surgical oncologists here at the University of Colorado. Dr. McCarter attended a medical school at the University of Vermont. He then completed his residency at Cornell in New York City and continued his time in New York City, completing a surgical oncology fellowship at the prestigious Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And then he joined the faculty here in 2001 and has been in Denver ever since. Dr. McCarter, thanks for joining us. That's my pleasure. To start, we ask all of our guests, uh, can you tell us what your path to academic surgery wa uh, it was and to the University of Colorado? Sure. So, you know, this started uh, back when I spent a year doing research between undergraduate and medical school. And, um, you know, at that point, I really hadn't even considered academics. I just wanted to go to medical school. And it kind of opened up the eyes and possibility to academics. And although it still sat on the back burner for a while while I sorted out what it is I wanted to do. And, you know, as I gradually worked through medical school, I, I came to realize that um, I was interested in academics. And, you know, I, I took quite a curve uh, getting there because I thought I was going to go into family practice when I went to medical school. But, you know, as things play out and interests change, uh, I gravitated toward surgery and then eventually figured out that I wanted to marry the surgery and the academic part together. And as you know, Dr. McCarter, this is the resident teaching and learning episode of Rocky Mountain Surgery. So first of all, we wanted to say thank you for all of your teaching here at the University of Colorado. We specifically wanted to interview you because we think you have a superior ability to teach within the operating room. You've won several teaching awards during your tenure here reflecting this. You're somebody who is always shouted out during Grand Rounds for your use of the simple app um, for residents in the operating room. So regarding teaching, is this something that you've actively practiced or that you just have an interest in and have excelled at? You know, I, I think it's some, certainly something I consciously practiced. And, you know, I don't 
I wouldn't have considered myself an outstanding teacher in any way, but I, I think I've learned some things along the way that do translate well. And one of the things that I really enjoy about the operating room is it, it is a very protected, sequestered time, which you don't often have in many other uh, settings. And it's a lot of one-on-one -on -one time. So that, having that opportunity, I think, is a wonderful chance to uh, share education, hopefully in a, a manner that is very, you know, receptive or the, or the students are very receptive to because they have such focused uh, attention at that point. So I think about this a lot because you don't learn how to teach in medical school. Not all of us were teachers in a prior life like Ali here. And so really, you kind of have to learn on the fly. So going back to early in your career as a resident or fellow, did you think that you wanted to practice at an academic center, at least partly to be afforded the opportunity to teach? Well, that took a, a long time to evolve or develop. I Once I decided I was interested in academics, uh, you know, I was thinking more of the opportunities for research and changing uh, future care and those kind of things. <clears throat> the teaching part of it actually came more from a philosophy of pay it forward, if you will. And that was that I was very grateful for all the education I had received both before and uh, during medical school and then during residency as well. And you realize that, you know, you're really imparted with this gift that people give you, this incredible legacy of building on what others have done before. Um, and I, because I felt so uh, grateful for that, I, the best way I felt to return that was to stay in academics and to hopefully push that forward for other people and encourage other people to do the same. When it comes to teaching in the operating room, what to get into your mind, what are attendings doing or thinking to aid in the teaching of residents that we may not be aware of? Like, I remember this as a teacher when I taught middle school. There were so many things, specifically the way I said things or the way I asked questions were actually deliberate when I know that my students had no idea that I was trying to make a point, and I bet that you do some of those things kind of in the operating room, whether that be kind of your questioning as to the next step of an operation or setting the resident up in a certain surgical field, what are the things that you are actively doing when you are teaching us? Well, that, that there are many answers to that question, as you might imagine, because it, it, it spans the gamut from... Part of it is I'm thinking, how do we uh, conduct this operation as efficiently as possible? Because I've got a two o'clock meeting right. uh, versus, <laughs> you know, we have all day to accomplish this, you know, complex operation. And how are we going to uh, work our way through it? You know, as you sort of alluded to, uh, you know, I, I do have a few sort of tricks um, that are not necessarily directed toward uh, the resident. And, and I, I say that because I, a lot of the teaching I will do will be questioning, say, the students or even any other uh, learners in the room. But in that questioning, I know full well that the resident is paying attention because if that other person weren't in the room, all the attention would be on them. And then so they, they've got this sort of little buffer, this little protected bit to think, uh oh, I better come up with a good answer to that because it's coming to me next. Uh -huh. and, and I, I want, you know, I better be ready for it. And, and the other part of that, too, is that I don't always expect uh, whoever I'm asking to know the answers. Um, but I do hope that they realize that that question 
is important for many reasons. And if, if they don't know the answer to it, that's a good indication of something that I need to go work on or learn about. Because generally those questions are, are really pointed towards the, the pertinent parts of what's going on in the operating room. And of course, you know, people at different levels have different abilities to receive information uh, based on, you know, what they already know or don't know. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a huge hierarchy in uh, the learning that's going on there because, you know, the, the new person in the room is still just trying to figure out what am I looking at? And, you know, the more senior people in the room are, have already figured that out, but they're trying to figure out, okay, where is this going next? What do I need to think about next? And so, you know, a lot of the questioning, although it might be directed specifically in one person, there's, there's a bunch of cascading educational opportunities that come from that. So it doesn't just happen in the operating room when it comes to education, preparing for cases for residents. So what are some common errors you see residents making, either preparing for cases in clinic or preparing the night before, or when it comes to being in the operating room and having success in the operating room? So I think that uh, that, that highlights a couple of important things. The first that you actually mentioned was uh, being prepared for the operating room. That is probably number one on the list. Having some idea of why the operation is being done, the general steps to the operation, the anatomy that you're going to be encountering, it, it's really important. And I tell you know all students, and when I'm telling the students, I'm really telling the residents, you know, spend five minutes before walking into the operating room, just you know, getting the basic information fresh in your head again, because then that allows you to start to take some of the next uh, steps. So at least having that. Uh, in your back pocket before you walk in the operating room is hugely helpful. And then, you know, uh, beyond that, I think the other thing that a lot of people really seem to struggle with is understanding the, the natural tissue planes. And of course, for the work that I do, you know, inside the abdomen, around stomach and pancreas and colon and retroperitoneal structures and all that, having a real good understanding of where those tissue planes should be is really, you know, facilitates the conduct of the operation. I'm sure you've all seen that before when when you start to separate tissues, just enough pressure to uh, display things. Um, it really becomes a lot clearer where to go than, you know, it had been when everything was, you know, laying on top of each other, kind of compressed against one another. So, you know, finding that right you know, tissue tension is, is really one of the toughest things to teach to residents. So going on this idea that times have changed and resources are available that weren't recently, what do you foresee with, with any significant changes coming for resident education? We mentioned the Simple app already, which, you know, we'd, we can explain in more detail later. But where, uh, what differences do you see when it comes to resident education moving forward? Yeah, so I think the the big shift now really is in the um, instantaneous feedback. And, uh, and I think this, you know, manifests itself in, in many ways. Um, you know, some of it is now the, um, you know, the, the more frequency of the inter, say, interim rotation feedback that we provide. You know, that's helpful. The, the idea behind the Simple app is to provide real-time immediate feedback at the very end of the operation. And by doing that, you know, you hope that the lessons uh, are a fresh in the memory, but also um, even little details might be captured that would have been missed when you're summarizing something four weeks later. So, so I think, 
you know, the immediacy of feedback, the expectation of feedback um, is beneficial. And I would say, you know, one of the things I would really encourage residents to do is seek that feedback because, you know, sometimes I may be thinking about it, but not say anything at that time because I don't want to embarrass them right there. Or sometimes, you know, I think about it, but then something else, you know, happens and I lose that train of thought. Or, you know, at the end of the operation, I'm off doing my dictation. The residents are off taking the patient to pack you. And then suddenly we lost the opportunity to uh, provide some of that instruction. The, you know, the other you know big change I see in education really is the utilization of video education and and or virtual reality or the at least the simulators that we have. And, you know, I, I still look at the simulation models and things that we have now as relatively crude, but they do help in some ways in terms of helping you understand some of the steps that might need to happen in an operation and, and are perfecting some of the technical aspects of it, particularly with the non-invasive or laparoscopic things. You know, and I actually think, you know, somewhat ironically, the robotic um, surgeries now uh, will become even more uh, pertinent to residents. I think as that new technology comes on, a lot of the attending staff are just learning how to do it themselves. And so not as much is being handed off to the residents in those arenas right now. But I think you can forecast a future when the robot is more commonly applied, more people are familiar and comfortable with it, and they can then start to turn over more of the robotic procedures to uh, residents and other edu- uh, learners. When you're giving feedback, do you have any specific tips? Like, for example, I've heard a lot about sandwich feedback. Hey, Allie, I really like how you did X part of the operation. When it came to part B, I think that you were having difficulty with this. And then kind of at the end, say something like, so in summary, I think that this went well. And then kind of ask the learner what they thought about it as well. Do you have any tips for providing feedback for people? Well, I, I've sort of grown up with the, the sandwich technique as well. So I think that's <laughs> a, uh, I think it's an effective way to deliver it. I think, you know, the old school way used to be, uh, forget about the, the two layers of the sandwich, just go right to the meat of it. And uh, the uh, and it was a lot more direct. There wasn't so much, um, you know, the positive feedback part of it. In fact, you know, much of it used to be, if you don't hear from me, you're doing fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you hear from me, then you've got a problem that we need to solve. So yeah, I think we've evolved quite a ways uh, from that time. And I do think it's important to give positive feedback. I mean, I think, you know, people, you know, uh, respond uh, in many ways much better to positive feedback. And you probably know this from teaching younger children and having children of my own. You realize if you really want to motivate them, the positive feedback is what really gets them to, you know, think about it and, and oh, yeah, that was, I want more of that. That's really what I want to hear as opposed to the, the negative feedback which just sort of beats them down and makes them feel undervalued. And and so, you know, having that constructive sandwich, if you will, that gives you the good parts that you can still build on and realize, okay, well, this is someplace I still need to work on. Since this is the teaching and learning episode, I just wanted to ask you, in terms of what residents should be able to do in the operating room based on PGY level, if I'm thinking about the intern, what are the things that they should be able to do in the operating room, the junior resident or the chief resident? What kind of, you know, things define those categories? So I think, you know, the, the one way to look at this is for 
the first and second year residents really to be perfecting their uh, instrument handling, tissue um, apposition, basic sewing and knot time. And that's, we, we beat on them to do that, but that's really what you want to get out of those first couple of years. Because most of those operations are going to be, you know, a skin or hernia or, you know, gallbladder, simpler things that are pretty straightforward. And, you know, every once in a while, you might have a, a more advanced level case that's a lot more fun, which is great. But, you know, you really want to get the fundamentals down so that when you do get to the next steps that you don't have to sweat those details so much. You're now starting to think a little bit more about what the operative operative options are going to be, what the pros and cons of those options are, you know, what the reconstruction should be and, and how you're going to, you know, do that and, and really start to focus more on those higher level details. I think that's one of the, you know, things we, we talked about before, you know, the errors of residents and, that, and some of those are not having some of those basic skills ready, to, you know, just completely rote memory by the time they move on. Because if you're still as a third and fourth year resident focusing on making sure I get the knots right, then you're not going to be able to take on the next level of processing and education and 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 ultimately uh, being able to lead the operation yourself. You know, you, you want all that stuff to be so far behind you that, you know, you're really thinking about how am I going to get this person through this operation? Okay, excellent. When I was a teacher, it was a very common saying that teachers are made, not born. I think that there is a very large degree of truth to that. Some people, I will say, are just inherently good at giving feedback and taking people through things. But for the majority of us, myself included, um, it's something that we have to work on and we can get better at it. So my question would be, what are the resources available to junior faculty that you know of um, to help develop their teaching skills? Yeah, I think you're you're right that historically that really wasn't emphasized very much. And fortunately, I think it is now more emphasized, uh, at, at least having some skill sets that were not necessarily uh, taught to us in the past. And, and so we now know, you know, a little bit more about feedback as being important. But we also, you know, understand... Um, you know, there are, you know, ways to construct the, um, the educational task at hand to meet the, the learner's needs. And so, you know, we know some people are better audio, some uh, learners, some are better visual learners, some are better, you know, reading, thinking. Um, and so, uh, you know, providing multimedia as an educational tool, I, I think, is, um, you know, very helpful. And then I think there are now more resources available than we used to have. So, you know, I know some of the academic medical societies do have a teach the teacher type things and, and giving faculty more you know, skills and more sense of um, how to balance the, you know, the educational opportunity at hand across, you know, a spectrum of different abilities to receive that uh, education. You know, and I think there's also... You know, now, even more opportunity online, you can, you know, read about how these, you know, how what makes an effective educator, for example. And again, there are many different styles that are uh, very effective at that. So, and, and then finding your own style uh, is helpful, too. And I, you know, I sort of think back to myself in that I didn't consider myself inherently a good teacher. But as time went on, I kind of figured out what, what things I do well. And I'm not 
the taskmaster per se in the operating room. We have lots of other good faculty who are, but I am a lot more of the thought processor of, okay, why are we doing this operation? What are their treatment options? What are the reconstructive options after you've taken that tumor out? What are the pros and cons of those options? And that's, you know, that's the kind of education that I really like to emphasize is, is more the thought process more so than the technical part, because I'm hoping that the technical part, people have already kind of gotten that, you know, largely through, you know, the, the years of repetition that led up to, you know, being able to do that kind of an operation. So <clears throat> Ali and I are both in the midst of our research years and started <laughs> thinking about what our academic career and research career is going to look like. I've had some discussions on it. I thought that Jason was going to segue into how when we come out of two years of research, we're going to have forgotten all of our intraoperative stuff. I've thought that to myself several times, so I guess we could just get it out on the table. <laughs> but besides, maybe we can discuss that in a second. But what I was getting at actually is uh, we're both realizing there's several steps to setting up a lab that are entirely separate from developing your surgical skills and, and what it needs to set up a clinical practice. And they're also not necessarily something that are taught to you in a, a deliberate manner. So what are some pointers do you have when it comes to setting up a lab? Either during, you know, what are the steps they can take during residency or fellowship or shortly thereafter to have success when it comes to research? Yeah, so first of all, I'll just comment that everyone who's in the lab always has that fear that they're not going to be up to snuff when they come out of the lab. It, it turns out it takes maybe a month to get back up to speed. Uh, it's like riding a bike. You'll be right back where you were before. You know, But as far as making that transition to uh, setting up your own lab, it, you know, first of all, I think the important thing is to 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 have a a goal and a passion. Actually, start with your passion and then have a goal in mind. You know, I think it's important that you you really have to want to do it because it is a longer road and it's a tougher road in many ways. Um, but if you're really interested and passionate in it, as many have said, it's not really work. It's something you just really love to do, um, and and so making sure that that's part of what you love to do. The other part of it too, and I think this has really evolved a long way again, even since, you know, when I came out of training, uh, it's no longer about the one PI or individual. It's about the team now. And and that's really an advantage in many ways for people uh, who are interested in academics is uh, finding that team to work with because not one person can run, you know, entire lab by themselves now. It's, it's multiple people. And, and honestly, to, you know, to bring the science to a higher level, higher level, you want that team. You want the different input from different uh, disciplines um, that really elevate the game all around. So I, I think some of the keys are finding the right uh, you know, people to work with when you start out. And you know, that takes a lot of you know, uh, footwork and, and figuring out what, what's present wherever your, your situation is and, uh, and, and do your diligence on finding out who's around and, and then asking other people, you know, who else might fit, you know, or here's my interests. Who else might I be compatible with in uh, finding a research project? And does that happen in a fairly informal way? Is it just a matter of reaching out either via email or in person and saying, hey, I think we could work really well together? Is it, you know, somewhat set up by your colleagues who think, hey, I think you'd work well with this person? What does that process look like? Much of it is uh, just sort of chance prepared to the, uh, you know, 
opportunity favors the prepared mind, yeah. I guess is a better way to say that. And that's that, you know, you, you never quite know when those uh, synergies might come along, but you, you know, you either see them, you see a flyer somewhere or you hear somebody give a presentation. You know, I think that's a way, I, at least for me, I found a lot of the collaborators I have. But some of the other collaborations actually came through direct mentorship. So, you know, just talking to uh, the section head or division or the, the department chair um, who, you know, points you in the right direction and says, hey, you know, why don't you go talk to so-and-so over in infectious disease? They've got, you know, they were asking me some questions about some, you know, lymph node or something. Maybe, uh, you know, you can help them, you know, translate their work uh, and then, you know, build your partnerships from there. And I've, I've sort of found it's, it's a bit of a snowball effect in that, huh. you know, at, at first it was hard to get going. You know, it was, you know, a lot of work and you, you kind of felt like you were out there on your own. And then pretty soon, you know, maybe a year and a half or two into it, you're suddenly, you know, finding that you're now connected with two or three different people. And then suddenly their friends are coming after you because you've got some skills or access uh, that they didn't have before. And, and, and gradually it just gets bigger and bigger. And, and uh, that's been actually a very pleasant surprise to see how it continued to evolve. All right. So lastly, it's no secret around here that you're quite the outdoor enthusiast and uh, athlete or endurance athlete. And actually in preparing for our chat today, I found out that you've ran both New York City and Boston marathons and you actually had a pretty, pretty solid time at both. <laughs> but coming, bringing that to today, uh, something I, I've mentioned before and think about is how do you find the time with both an academic career, a clinical career and, and your research uh, requirements? To, to enjoy those passions and, and stay fit in general. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that at this point in my career, I'm a, a, a full-on weekend warrior. <laughs> there was a time when I had a little bit more free time. The lab was a wonderful opportunity to run a marathon. Mm -hmm. uh, hence, those times were a little more reflective or a little more um, uh, better than they would be now. But having uh, you know said that, I think you know, it, it's just been part of me. It's a foundation. It's something that's always been there. And no matter what I've been doing or going through, I never completely gave that up. So I've always kept something, you know, going in the outdoor or endurance, you know, world, running, biking, finding other uh, Spartan races and, th and those kind of things that kind of change it up a little bit, but keep you interested and motivated you know, I, I think the hardest thing is obviously to, to pick up something new. So not letting go of what you had acquired before has been very helpful. For one last question, Dr. McCarter, is there anything else that you wish we had asked you about or words of wisdom for those who are about to start training or in the middle of training? Well, I would just say that I still feel that my choices have been by far the best choices I, I ever could have made. I, I can't imagine doing anything else than what I'm doing right now. And that wasn't necessarily clear back in the day, but it's um, it's absolutely 100% true now. I, you know, even looking back, I, I wouldn't change a thing that I've chosen. And I know I made the right choice to stay in academics. Well, this has been great. We really appreciate your time. Uh, it was a great discussion. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you.
So up next, we talked to Dr. Julia Coleman, one of the PGY3 surgery residents here in Colorado. Julia just returned from a teacher's, excuse me, residence as Teachers and Leaders Conference, which is put on by the college. Um, and she had some very interesting takeaways from this conference. So with that, let us talk with Julia. All right. We are very pleased to have our own Julia Coleman here with us on the podcast. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. I've been listening along to the podcast, so I'm honored to now be a part of it. Excellent. We're part of the Mutual Appreciation Society. So, Julia, we ask everybody who comes on the show, what was your specific journey to surgery and kind of this idea that you want to be a trauma surgeon and you want to be in academics and a surgical leader? Where did that all start? Sure. So my journey to surgery was a little bit of a surprise because I actually uh, went into medical school thinking I wanted to do primary care and family practice. So I studied medical anthropology in undergrad. I then got my master's in public health and I studied health behavior. Uh, and then I went to medical school and I was the president of the family medicine club. So I was very gung-ho primary care. And when I signed up for my rotations, I signed up for surgery first because I was like, I'm just going to get it over with. There's no way I would ever want to do surgery. <laughs> and then I did my surgery rotation and I totally loved it. Um, I loved uh, the people that I worked with. I loved uh, the surgical pathologies and surgical care. I loved being in the operating room. And I really felt like it was, um, of all the specialties I rotated in, the best marriage of anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, all of the core principles of medicine that I really loved. Uh, so that's what got me into surgery. And in terms of trauma, um, that was a lot of my exposure during medical school, which is what got me excited about here. And then certainly that's really been nurtured by uh, the rich trauma experience that we get here in our own program, particularly at Denver Health. Um, and I also identified some uh, mentors that uh, also happen to be trauma surgeons that have sort of been instrumental in that as well. Now, Julia, you know, I'm not hugely surprised that you switch from family practice, especially going into trauma surgery, because I think that there is a good amount of public health risk mitigation, talking about behaviors like your entire MPH work, it sounds like, um, and taking care of an at-risk population when you're thinking about trauma patients. Is that something that you agree with? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Uh, one of the things that uh, attracted me to trauma surgery was sort of the multifaceted approaches of its care. So for one, there's certainly so much in public health um, that uh, I, I ultimately think trauma surgeons are very poised to uh, be public health advocates because they have a unique perspective from mm. um, their clinical experience. And uh, certainly so much of uh, trauma surgery um, epidemiology sort of screams at the the need for prevention. And, and so I think policy advocacy is, is a really exciting area for trauma surgeons to play a role. Um, and then furthermore, I think, you know, in addition to the surgery aspect, I think the critical care around trauma surgery is fascinating too. Um, and also sort of brings in other aspects that I'm interested in, like palliative care and goals of care and quality of life discussions. And so I think all of those things from policy advocacy to patient advocacy and dignity advocacy is, is really um, available in trauma surgery. So that's what I love about it. 
Now, we're both very excited to hear about your recent trip to Chicago for the Residences, Teachers and Learners course, but we recently had a conversation with Dr. McCarter all about learning in the operating room. We'd love to hear about some of your tips and tricks for maximizing your experience in the operating room. So to start, what do you typically do to prepare for a case? Uh, and what are some of the resources you rely on, whether they're textbooks or YouTube or whatnot? Yeah, sure. So for case preparation, I sort of uh, approach it threefold. It's patient-specific, pathology-specific, and procedure-specific. So for each of those three, I approach it differently and use different resources. So for patient-specific, before I go into the operating room, I've tried to, if I can, every now and then you get thrown into cases, but uh, for preparation, reading about the patient, reading about their HPI, um, in particular, their risk factors that are relevant to the pathology they're presenting with and what their unique comorbidities and medications are that are relevant to the pathology and the operation, and as well as patient-specific factors for operative optimization. So what uh, about that specific patient uh, needs to be addressed to optimize them for the surgery? So those would be the patient-specific aspects. Then for pathology-specific um, I, I think it's important to read about the pathophysiology, the natural history of the pathology, um, <clears throat> and in particular, sort of indications for operation. And then lastly, procedure-specific. So, uh, again, indications for operation, um, the pertinent anatomy, the main steps of the operation, um, plan B, uh, in other words, sort of anticipating what could go wrong and where it could go wrong, and if it does, what do you do? Uh, which I think is a really, for me, the most challenging part of learning. And then lastly, sort of the post-op care for that specific procedure. So those are the three uh, tiers that I approach preparation in the operating room and how I do that. So for patient-specific, obviously, you're reviewing the patient's chart. Uh, for pathology-specific, I started out reading Cameron's my intern year, and then I've now switched to uh, Greenfield's. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's sort of my textbook for pathology. And then for procedure-specific preparation, mastery of surgery uh, is my go-to. And then uh, the anatomy uh, atlases I find helpful are Netters and Zollinger. I mean, I think that's an excellent roadmap. If residents follow that map that you just laid out for them, they're going to hit it out of the park pretty much every case. So thanks for that. Let me interrupt you sure. just for one second. Have you found any value in any of the like video teaching? So, for example, I think that like Giblib has certain videos. I've actually found that a lot of their videos are like not that helpful to me. That a lot of times they're either too sped up, you can't really see the anatomy super well. Sorry, Giblib. Obviously, we're not sponsored by you or anyone <laughs> um, yet. <laughs> yet. So anyway. I do think, though, that, like, actually seeing something or, like, seeing the way that somebody holds a retractor or seeing the way the plane, the white line, the whatever, um, on video rather than in a textbook could be useful. But I, like you, haven't totally incorporated it into my preparation. Any thoughts on that? I also heard yesterday about some app on your phone um, where it takes you through, like, super common cases. Do you remember the name of that app? Yeah, it's Touch Surgery. Did it's, you look it up? Uh, I've actually used it before. It's a, it's a very simplified uh, app in that basically it's, it's boiled down to the, the steps of each surgical case. It, it's nice because it gives you a visual background to what those steps are. So instead of reading through in a paragraph format, there's a diagram in front of you or you're actually kind of clicking through the actual case as you like, you know, quote unquote, remove a body part. 
Uh, but beyond that, you're not going to develop any of the actual haptic skills or feedback skills, despite the name of the uh, app from using that. I think it's great early on past that really get into like the nuts and bolts of surgery. It doesn't go beyond that. So any other non-book learning for you, Julia, or you haven't really incorporated it either? Yeah, I think touch surgery was helpful my intern year, but lost a uh, utility for me thereafter. I think it's a good tool for a novice learner, uh, certainly, which I still am in some categories. And uh, besides that, I haven't really found like a great, reliable video source. So certainly I'll go to YouTube and find videos and every now and then you can find one that seems to be helpful. But I mean, uh, the best way to do that is to be in the OR. Agreed. Yeah, I'll jump in and give my two cents. I find that Especially for that first time you're going into a case, and it's especially an area of anatomy that you're not used to, like either the pelvis and it's your first LAR, those videos are great for you to just feel familiar when you're actually in the operating room. Again, it's not going to help you walk through those steps when you're actually in the operating room and firing the stapler or whatnot. But early on, I actually really enjoyed videos because I do think it helped me feel more comfortable with what I was looking at because you can stop and pause it and compare it to an uh, atlas or read through the steps in a textbook. It just gives you another video, uh, visual background. Uh, but this kind of brings us to our next topic. Each of us learn differently in the operating room or learn differently in general. So I'm very much a kinesthetic learner. Even when I'm reading, I'm having to write down. When I'm reading, I have to do something with my hands when it comes to learning. And I think in the operating room early on, it's somewhat of the see one, do one, teach one, although there's a lot of seeing first off. Have you encountered that there are varieties of ways of teaching that maybe work better with how you learn versus some that don't work as well with how you learn? Sure. So I'm very much so a visual learner. Um, and so for me, uh, really the best learning is when, when I'm new to a case is being double scrubbed in on the case and watching it. And I did a lot of double scrubbing my intern year. And I think it was one of the best decisions I made for my learning, because even if you're not actively doing the operation, being scrubbed in and sitting and watching what's being done and the way that it's being done is hugely helpful. Um, so for me, starting watching operations, whether that was double scrubbed or assisting, um, in particular, if it's with an attending who can talk, operate out loud. So as they're doing their steps, say, you know, right now, this is the structure I'm trying to isolate and I need to be wary of what's nearby and I'm making sure when I'm holding an instrument in a particular way that I'm thinking about this or that. So if someone's actually operating out loud, that's very helpful for me. And then I also think then once my comfort level is up, then sort of performing pre-planned tasks. So it's helpful for me to establish objectives going into an operation with the attending where I say, you know, these are the things that I need to see better or know better. And these are the things that I would like to do. I would like to be a part of this step of the operation. And so for me, then performing pre-planned tasks is very helpful. But um, honestly, I, I'm sort of a traditional learner in that like I still like reading textbooks, actual textbooks. And I very much like the Socratic type of teaching method and the Halsteadian type of autonomy approach. So for me, those work very well. So in the operating room, I do well if it's a Socratic method and they're asking questions as we go along. I find that helpful. And also for me, the whole idea of the traditional Halsteadian graded autonomy, once I've established trust with an attending, uh, is helpful for me as well. And then once I am actively participating and assisting in the operation, 
being able to struggle is a good learning experience for me. And I think that that could be a whole nother podcast episode in terms of, you know, how, how much you let someone struggle and at what level and how much and how long and, uh, but struggling through steps is a helpful learning experience, even though it's uncomfortable. And then, you know, lastly, then when I feel comfortable doing something after I've observed it and started scrubbing it, scrubbing in and doing it is then teaching it. That That's helpful for me too. And obviously at my level, that's not a lot of the critical portions of operations, but even just being able to walk through the principles of tissue handling and closure at the end of a case with a med student is helpful for me. So you mentioned this idea of Halstedian autonomy, and we do have some med students or even pre-med students who have never heard the term of Halstead. Uh, do you just want to give us a quick blurb on you know, what that means to you or how you would define Halstedian autonomy and how that applies to surgical education? Sure. So Halstead is a famous surgeon that uh, also could be another podcast episode because there's so much to say about that. But the Halsteadian model of graded autonomy is the idea that um, you give sort of uh, training level appropriate autonomy. Uh, so everyone has some degree of that. And as you progress along in your training, accordingly, your autonomy should also expand. Uh, so, you know, whether that means in specific examples that an intern is given um, some of the sort of simple uh, elements of an operation, whether that's skin closure or assisting or driving the camera, to then um, at a chief level, they should be doing the patient positioning, starting the case, they should be helping with the crit or doing the critical portions of a case. So it's the idea that as you progress along in your training, uh, accordingly, your autonomy should be graded up as well. Let's get to this course that you took in Chicago. The, well, why don't you just tell us all about it? Sure. So uh, last weekend, I had the honor of attending the Residence as Teachers and Leaders course, or RATL, as it's called for short. Um, and this is a course that is hosted by the American College of Surgeons every year. They've been doing it, I believe, for the last five years now. It's hosted actually at the um, headquarters for the American College of Surgeons uh, in Chicago. And every year they host a little over 100 uh, residents from across the country for this course, which, um, as the name implies, is focuses on teaching and leadership development. And really, the nidus for the creation of this course was sort of a paucity of this type of professional development in the traditional general surgery curriculum. So most people that go into surgery residency want to be leaders, and most people that join an academic training program want to be good teachers. And yet somehow this sort of this expectation that when you wake up the first day of chief year, you just somehow have these skills to be a great leader on a team. And that when you walk into intern year, you somehow have great teaching skills for the med student that joins you that day. Um, but there's really not a formal development for those type of skills. And this is uh, something that's pervasive across general surgery curriculums across the country. And so in response to that, ACS created this course uh, to nurture that type of development. So it's taught by several um, faculty, uh, program directors, PhDs in surgical education uh, that uh, give various lectures and uh, interactive exercises that are focused on teaching and leadership development. It is a great experience. And um, I think an ideal model would be if every general surgery residency could form some sort of rattle type model in their surgical curriculum in whatever fashion that looks like, uh, I think would be really uh, a huge development and, and certainly there's a need there. 
Why don't you give us some of the lowdown about some of the specific lectures or exercises that you guys went through during this course? Can you teach Jason and I how to become <laughs> surgical leaders? So uh, the, t the teaching lecture is focused on um, sort of the tips and tricks of the trade for teaching in a very time-constrained environment um, and teaching in a unique environment and to unique levels of learning, whether that's in the operating room or in an ambulatory setting, whether you're teaching to someone who's introverted or extroverted, someone that's a visual learner versus someone that needs to be reading things. Um, and so they gave sort of pearls for all those different types of teaching. And then um, for leadership, talked about um, the qualities that are important to be a strong leader, whether that's conflict resolution, um, interdisciplinary teams, uh, the different types of leadership that can be adapted to different types of scenarios. And, and so those are sort of the overarching themes. But they had several lectures that focused on specifically teaching in the operating room, which is the theme of this episode. So I'll give you a couple pearls. So I think um, two of the models that they talked about, which are commonly discussed, are the BID model and the Zwisch scale of operative guidance, which I can talk uh, in detail about briefly. But uh, I think the the barrier to teaching in many settings, ambulatory, intraoperative, and otherwise, is really time constraints. And so uh, I think the Helpful strategies to reduce cognitive load and create a scaffolding for learning in a time-constrained environment are things like selecting procedural tasks that are based on the actual learner's level, so making it learner-oriented, um, having learners complete predetermined tasks in the OR. So if you tell them ahead of time, this is a part that I want you to uh, be engaged in, that's helpful. Um, Taking over when beginning learners are struggling and describing your approach, but with later learners, more advanced learners, letting them struggle a little. Adjusting support for learner based on their prior experience, so referencing prior operations and patient interactions, and asking the learner to explain steps rather than just telling them what to do. So the BID model is something that's often used in the operating room uh, for teaching, and it stands for briefing interoperative teaching, and then debriefing. Um, and so the whole idea is during briefing, that's sort of your educational timeout. Um, and that's even when you're like scrubbing at the sink before the case. And you can talk about what your expectations are for the med student or for the resident and establish learning objectives. And really, I think doing this sort of sets the culture, sets the climate, creates uh, rapport and trust with who the learner is. If from the get-go, you are briefing and saying, this is a learning environment, we're taking a time out. These are the educational objectives. And then the I and the BID is for interop teaching. So then doing objective-oriented teaching, um, facilitating participation, posing questions. And then the D is for debriefing. So afterwards, um, a time for feedback and self-assessment, real-time, uh, reviewing learning points, and then making tasks for the next time you see that learner. So that's the BID model. And I think it's important uh, for residents to think about uh, the fact that the goal in teaching med students is not to train future surgeons, but to train future providers. And if you go into teaching in that respect, then it can be a lot more high yield because there's so much you can learn in the operating room outside of surgery, everything from tissue handling and healing to anesthesia and otherwise. 
Um, then the other sort of pearl that they talked about at Rattle was the Zwisch Scale of Operative Guidance, which is named after a surgeon, Dr. Zwisch, um, who uh, talks about analogous to this idea of graded autonomy, but that there are four levels of guidance in the operating room. There's show and tell, active help, passive help, and then supervision only. So show and tell is in the beginning with a new learner uh, operating out loud, like I talked about. So showing them what you're doing, but describing what you're doing, how and why. Then active help is letting a learner then become engaged, but still actively assisting. Passive help is the idea of letting the learner take a more advanced role and struggle some. And then supervision only is sort of when you are at a chief level, then really allowing them to uh, be the active principal operator in the case. I just learned so much. I know. Um, <laughs> thanks for that. Well, Julia, thank you so much for coming to chat with us. We really appreciate it. Anything else you'd like to add about education in the operating room or in surgical education in general? No, I think we've covered a lot, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming, Julia. Thanks. All right, well, that wraps up another episode of Rocky Mountain Surgery. Remember, if you guys have any questions about surgical residency, about surgery in general, the life of surgery, feel free to email us at rmspodcast at outlook.com or follow us on Twitter and reach out to us at rmspod. Thanks, guys. Thanks. See you in Austin. Austin.